Hello, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode of Three Panel Contrast, in which I got to pick the texts and made everyone read a ton of event comics. We're going to be looking at Marvel's 2006 event, Annihilation, by Keith Giffen and Friends, we'll say, and DC's 2007 event, Sinestro Corps War, by Jeff Johns and Friends. We are also going to have, as usual, an academic review. Um, this month, it's going to be me reviewing Charles Hatfield's book, Hand of Fire, The Comics Art of Jack Kirby. Without further ado, let's get started. So I'm Dr. Anne Lepard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. As usual, I am joined by... Andrew Demay. I'm a lecturer at the University of Waterloo, St. John's campus. I'm Dr. Hancock, a researcher at the University of Waterloo. So let's get right into introducing our texts for this month. So Michael is going to introduce us to Sinestro Corps War, I believe. The Sinestro Corps War was an 11-issue comic book event that unfolded in 2007, largely taking place in the titles Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps. The subtly named Sinestro, former Green Lantern and longtime series villain, has formed his own corps, the Yellow Lanterns, with membership based around the capacity to evoke fear. In addition to a massive set of rank-and-file members, Sinestro has also recruited a gallery of DC heavy hitters, with varying degrees of history with the Green Lanterns. There is the existence-shattering Anti-Monitor, Parallax, the parasite who once drove Green Lantern Hal Jordan into a killing spree of his fellow Lanterns, and Cyborg Superman, the villain who inspired the killing spree after destroying Jordan's home city and family. Also, there's Superman Prime, who is... Basically Superman, but also an asshole. The Yellow Lantern's first strike leaves the Green Lantern Corps in disarray, and Kyle Rayner, Hal Jordan's one-time replacement, possessed by Parallax. What follows is a war on two fronts. In the main Green Lantern title, Hal Jordan and a platoon consisting largely of Green Lanterns formerly killed by Hal Jordan, or thought to be killed, go to the planet Quard in the antimatter universe to rescue Ion, the Green Lantern power source that had formerly inhabited Kyle. And in the Green Lantern Corps, the remaining Green Lanterns travel to Mogo, the Green Lantern who is also a planet, to fight off an invasion by the Yellow Lantern who is also a city. After the two operations wrap up, Sinestro leads an attack against Earth. Massive mass fights follow, and Sinestro is seemingly defeated, but not before the Guardians lift the restrictions on Green Lanterns committing murder, which was apparently his ultimate goal. If you are unfamiliar with the history of the Green Lanterns, there's a good chance that most of what I've said sounds like someone flipping through a sci-fi-themed book of Mad Libs. Its creative teams include Dave Gibbons on writing duties, though he's probably better known for artistic collaborations with Alan Moore, and artist even Vince Scriver, though he's probably better known now for his involvement in Comicsgate and work illustrating Jordan Peterson's self-help book. I'm explicitly not linking those two events. <laughs> However, the primary architect is longtime comics writer Jeff Johns. Two of Jeff Johns' primary DC work before this long run was The Justice Society of America and The Flash, and the strengths from both series are on display here. From The Justice Society of America, there's a massive cast and a modernization of elements from deep in DC's past. And from The Flash, there's a rehabilitation of an elaborate rogues gallery of villains. Uh, from this point, Johns would go on to become one of DC's primary voices, serving as president and chief creative officer of DC Entertainment, the latter being a position he held from 2010 to 2018, overseeing the creative direction of not just DC's uh, comic properties, but also major television series and films. 
One reading of the Sinestro Corp War, then, is that it signals some of the shifts Johns would oversee, such as a push towards reflexive but also darker superhero stories. As you may have gathered from my tone, I'm somewhat skeptical towards the quality of this event, but it's worth remembering that the Sinestro Corps War was massively popular in its time, solidifying the revitalization of the Green Lantern franchise. Then executive editor Dan Didio states that, quote, is the best thing we have put out this year without a doubt, and declared it the model for future crossovers. However well it sits on its own merits, then, the Sinestro Corps War stands as a blueprint for cosmic comic events and how DC will tell its stories going forward. To paraphrase Sinestro, in blackest day and brightest night, beware your fears made into light, particularly true in this case if your fears happen to be this approach for comics continuing for the next 10 years or so. Annihilation is a Marvel Comics crossover event and miniseries that came out in 2006 and is notable for setting in motion the developments that would lead to the formation of the iconic Guardians of the Galaxy lineup that we see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe so prominently. The series is helmed primarily by Keith Giffen, best known for being the co-creator of both Rocket Raccoon for Marvel uh, and Lobo for DC. After a one-issue prologue, the story unfolds over the course of several four-issue tie-in miniseries, each focused on a particular character, Nova, Silver Surfer, Super Scroll, and Ronan the Accuser, with direct ties to earlier series based around Drax the Destroyer and Thanos. Following the four-issue miniseries titles, there is then a six-issue Annihilation miniseries itself, which brings all these characters and their respective struggles together to resolve all conflicts simultaneously. It's an effective crossover structure that works well and allows readers some agency to pursue the full story to the depth of their choosing. While somewhat under the radar, this excellent series breathes new life into beloved characters who originate from an all-star team of creators. Giffen is able to weave together a narrative that combines characters invented or developed by Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Steve Englehart, Bill Mantlo, Chris Claremont, Roy Thomas, and Jim Starlin, to name a few. I think that in comics culture these days, Anytime you hear that your favorite character is going to be in a Marvel movie or game or whatever, your reaction is going to be, I hope they do that character justice. I hope they make them good. To me, that's Giffen's challenge here. Don't let these great creators down. At the same time, we could argue that the pressure is off since Marvel wasn't exactly selling a ton of Ronan the Accuser lunchboxes at the time the series came out. Nonetheless, Giffen shows a depth touch in honoring the rich history of these characters whilst giving them new life possibly even saving some of them from the intellectual property scrap heap altogether. Readers hoping to find Guardian of the Galaxy may be disappointed with a story that is more Joseph Conrad than Venus Bendis, but engaging nonetheless, one that would set the stage for a Marvel cosmic revival that continues to unfold to this day. The series is not without problems, however. Its handling of female characters is hard to forgive in the 21st century, and the villain is underwhelming as villains go and will likely never be deemed movie-worthy until Marvel is out of other villains entirely. Pastepot Pete, for contrast, is both more memorable and in some ways more threatening than Annihilus's power sets aside. That said, if you enjoy classic stories of cosmic adventure with a modern military twist, you should read Annihilation. It's a good deal better than the average Star Wars movie. If, however, you're not a fan of Marvel Cosmic, come stare at the absolutely stunning cover art of Gabriel Delato which is some of the finest you will see in the history of comics in general. 
So an event comic has a really difficult job of balancing character with action. The action has to be especially big, especially bombastic, especially consequential, but there are also just so many damn characters involved. So striking that balance seems like it's really important to making an event comic just good, just impactful, enjoyable. How did you feel that either of these series did at that, at balancing character and action? I think we're going to sign with Annihilation on this one, but we, we should talk about both. Uh, okay, well, let's maybe start with Annihilation, just because it's the one we're on board with. Um, no, it, it does a really good job. I, I think if we're being um, fair, and you know, critically fair, um, I would argue that towards the end of the Annihilation miniseries, Ronan is kind of doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Drax is doing his own thing, and Nova's doing his own thing. Uh, there's some intersections there, but they do kind of split off. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at the start of the series, I thought they did a great job of having them all kind of in the same place from different perspectives, interacting with each other well, uh, and all that kind of thing. The characters, as I said um, in my introduction, like they have a history. They have a pre-existence that you kind of want to honor. Uh, but at the same time, like these are characters that never, never took off prior to this. So well, probably with the exception well, of Silver Surfer. Yeah, with the exception of, of Surfer, he's had a lot of series. Surfer is such a weird anomaly. Like to hear all the people who've worked on Silver Surfer talk about it, it he's the greatest character in the Marvel universe. Because he is. But <laughs> statistically, sales wise, well, if you take Spider-Man out of the running, maybe one of the most like characters who's characteristic of the Marvel Universe. We yeah. had to sum it up. Uh, I don't even know if I go that far. No? I think about somebody like The Thing or something. Okay, yeah, we talk about Fantastic Four, he's sort of so emblematic. Of, yeah. He sums up a lot in terms of angst. and he, he, The long-suffering. He's, I think he summarizes a certain approach to Marvel. I would say that he represents, for me the ambitions of the Marvel approach being very high-minded and mm. philosophical. <laughs> but that's sometimes what makes him such a funny character because his stories try to be so high-minded and he's... He's heavy. Yeah. He's always so, so heavy. The The 90s cartoon is amazing. I was going to bring that <laughs> Yeah, just because... Let's, let's take that like monologuing and turn it into a show for children mm-hmm. which is just such a natural fit and yet I love him so much I'm criticizing him but I'm like he's one of my top three superhero loves of all time well spinning that around then what did you think of Annihilation's portrayal of Surfer um, he's sidelined in, in, in yeah. the mini series but yeah he gets a lot of good moments though I mean he has that usual thing that he has in a lot of events where he's sort of like in stasis or a bunch of it but then there's a really great <laughs> moment where he breaks free and does his thing because yeah. for some reason he's just so much better than the other heralds like yeah. even though they all technically have the same powers but he's just so much better I don't know why that is but he's the Silver Surfer yeah I mean we've got Nova rising to that level um, of being and, superpowered and that's I think one of the major things this particular event does, like, let's elevate Nova. And Drax, too. Drax becomes unstoppable. Yeah. I mean, I think going for after this series, though, Drax is kind of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bendis' Drax is not as powerful. 
And neither uh, Abnett or Lannings. He's a side character in the Guardians, not yeah. Also, this might be, you know, giving it too much credit, but I read Drax as being basically unstoppable within the context of Annihilation because you have to buy into he's unstoppable because his mission is to kill Thanos, and as long as he's working toward that goal, he's unstoppable until he's completed that mission, which is mm-hmm. one of those cosmic conceit kind of things where he's yeah. just basically magic. But... I kind of buy into that because it's such a cool, like, he's totally unstoppable, will do absolutely anything and be whoever he has to be to accomplish that goal. And I don't know, I sort of like that. I actually kind of like it from a tension perspective. The idea mm-hmm. of, I mean, we explore this in horror movies like um, It Follows, that you have this, this slow moving death coming towards mm-hmm. you and you can't stop it. You can just kind of run away from it and that kind of thing. And so his destiny becomes really interesting to me. Well, and I think he's checking in on Drax, just like <laughs> killing another horde. Of yeah. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. He killed another 300 bug guys. I mean, this is a repeated note for Drax, but just the idea of killing Thanos is a good thing, except at this one particular yeah, time that you did it, Drax got done. I love that. And the, the moment where it happens, too, where you get sort of like Thanos' face going like, huh? And then he looks down and sees that his heart's been punched out. That's maybe my favorite moment of the whole, yeah. whole series. Yeah, it's, it's a nice moment for Moondragon, too, because Drax's destiny has affected her relationship with her father. Yeah. To, to sort of have it climax like that, but... No, no, please don't do that, you idiot. Please don't do that, you idiot. (laughs) Maybe we should, for the benefit of our listeners who maybe have not read this, are not familiar with the many different iterations of Drax. This particular iteration of Drax is a bit different than some of the previous ones. He's, like, smarter than some of the most most of the previous iterations of Drax. He's certainly more than... Or he, he's certainly operating on a different level than the film that people would be most familiar with. Yeah, yeah. Which sort of goes back more to the more... Yes, he drives as one of those guys that he keeps dying and being reborn. He's sometimes different each time he comes back. So this particular time, he's more of like a... He's, what is he, like a Jason Statham type? He's sort of... He's a wisecracker a little bit. And he wears like the low-slung boot-cut pants. Yeah, he's very indifferent and insensitive. Yeah. As much as he's humanized by the presence of Cammy as well, too, right? He's a smart-ass, too, which is very like different from... He's gruff. Yeah, the, yeah. maybe the, the Wolverine kind of mode a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's a nice quotation from Nova's dialogue uh, that sums up a lot of the series <laughs> and also uh, the character... Guess that's why they call him the, the, the Destroyer. He destroyed Richard Ryder, the boy, oh, to make God. room for oh, Nova, yeah. the man. Oh, okay, well, yeah. yeah we don't so... see that like at all. <laughs> no, no, we see him promise to do it in yeah. the Nova series, but then we jump ahead to, yeah. which is probably for the best. And Nova kind of seems exactly the same. Okay, well, just better at fighting. Let's talk about. It does Nova sound a little then. sexual too, but. No. <laughs> Nova's the point of view character yeah. for the Annihilation event, so Annihilation yeah. 1-6. to How did you feel about him as the point of view character? I Some of that like exposition um, dialogue I think, is yeah, so Giffen, The voice for him is yeah, not the, the, He is kind of the driving force for the entirety of the cosmic events that will follow, and I think over the very broad course, they do a really nice job of turning him from the over his head youth to the mm-hmm. hardened battle veteran. How old is he supposed to be? Well, let's see. He starts this... He's a new warrior. Yeah. So that was Marvel's teen series of the 90s. Yeah. Um, but then they depict the new warriors as still being very young in yes the war. Yes and 
Yeah, but I think increasingly aging after that to make room for new teenage characters. Yeah, I feel like in Civil War when the Stanford thing happens and they explode the town. Yeah, they're young like, then. It's like they're teenagers. But also those are kind of some of the younger members anyway. Yeah, but Nova should be the same age as Speedball, and yet it's like Speedball goes from being 16 and then he becomes Penance and he's like 25. I yeah, don't know how, like... I think that's where they're supposed <laughs> to be by the end of the yeah. cosmic stuff. But yeah. anyway. I mean, the idea that this is a 19-year-old is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Drax turned him into a man using his space magic. Right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most of those conversations. Between... Jeans. I, I think leather pants, leather pants. Well, I think don't think jeans. about it. Is the... <laughs> yeah. Most of those conversations between Nova and Star Lord. Uh, yeah. They read like your dad well, meeting it, his best friend at yeah. the park. It's interesting because like Star Lord plays a very similar role to what Drax is set up to do mm-hmm. in terms of like these are both mentor figures who are meant to help. Uh, He's just Nova surrounded along. by mentor father figures. Yeah. really. <laughs> so we, we should say so the catalyst that sets off the the event is the Nova Corps being destroyed in sort of the first annihilation wave, and then so mm-hmm. Richard Ryder takes all of the Nova Force into himself, and then becomes this like sort of he was cosmically powerful before, but like ultra cosmically powerful, so that he's sort of on the level of characters like the Surfer and stuff, and able to be that center point of an event like this. Mm-hmm. Which I think is what happens to Kyle Rayner in the yeah, 90s? Sort of, so the Green Lantern Corps is like DC's version, well, Nova Corps is Marvel's version of yeah. Green Lantern Corps, that would be the way that that works, right. in terms of who's copying who. But never with the same <laughs> level of popularity. Or yeah, focus. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're, are we saying that we think the character work in Annihilation is primarily good did it work for you guys um, did yes it although i will make a quick criticism one of the mini series is uh focuses on uh the super scroll mm-hmm. and you would think that these four were supposed to be priming you to main characters for the annihilation and mm-hmm. he's kind of a secondary character at best yeah yeah he doesn't have a huge role in the main series yeah i mean i like his mini series i mean his relationship with what is it, Praxagora? Yeah, Praxagora. It's problematic, but they also she's like, got a bit of a Stockholm Syndrome thing going yeah. on. And but they, at the same time, they're kiss when they, like, he decides to she does get, like, fridged nice. pretty quickly in the next yeah, series. I know, which is unfortunate. Uh, well, what about Sin- Sinestro for War? How did we feel about the character work there, to the um, extent that there was character work? I think for an event to work, you need a few characters to be the ones that you focus on mm-hmm. and but also that those characters are providing different perspectives yeah, yeah. and that works pretty well with annihilation yeah. i think the problem with the uh sinister core war is that the green lantern's core series has too many points of view yeah. and the green lantern has too few yeah that the green lantern is hal jordan and if you're not on board with that character, then that's gonna that's gonna be rough. Yeah, because yeah. the series is about how, right? And, As you mentioned, yeah. it's about and the Green Lantern Corps doesn't really focus on individual characters until the mm-hmm. very tail end of the series, where they're my favorite issues, but also it's a lot at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see a very different version of this where it would be like we had sort of four central characters or something you know we had like the Kyle story the Hal story the John story the Guy Gardner story 
and have those be the four focal points and have like four different sort of bands of the story being told by those characters. And but instead you get things like Guy Gardner's in this story and then just in like one of the second to last issues, oh, he's infected with that intelligent virus and mm-hmm. then we're going to cure him. And it was just like, what the, you could have introduced him with like mm-hmm. the cough in the first act and then we would have built up to that. And instead you just throw right. it in there. And there's like one of the main villains, the city yellow corpse has like a feud with him yeah but it doesn't matter because he doesn't doesn't even appear in that yeah so it's just yeah there's just a lot of missed opportunities there it felt like to kind of because those four green lanterns are in theory very different characters with different backgrounds and personalities and i just like you can barely tell the difference between them in this series sometimes well i think one of the places they they i don't know if i can say they succeeded but then they maybe a little bit succeeded uh, of delineating the characters was surrounding this um, ethics of capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this whether or not they would be on board with this ability to kill yeah, now. Yeah. And I would have liked to have seen more of that. I would have liked to see more and debate. I imagine, at least I think I recall, that's what happens next. But I do recall like more discussion of that afterwards. Yeah. You think that that would have been a central part of this event. Uh, yeah. You, like who, The only person I think that we even have seriously objecting to it is... Sorry, I always forget. Arisia? Arissa? Arisia. Arisia? Is that how we're saying it? <laughs> Hal Jordan's one time super problematic love interest <laughs> with the, uh, like, really improbable costume. Oh, no, wait, wait. wait you're going to see them. <laughs> You're going to have to narrow it down from his love interests that were Oh, well, yeah, okay. The one with the... Who aged herself up from, like, yeah. 13 to be with him, and he was like, okay. Yeah, that would be the one. But she, she protests against it and says that she's not going to use lethal force, but we don't see anybody else, I don't think, sort of meaning to yeah. protest against it. And maybe that's one of the challenges, because that comes into play once they're fighting. They really don't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I mean, that's there's a also, choice you make as the writer to do it that way. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I mean a problem with Green La- the Green Lantern series conceptually, f- for me, always, is that the Guardians are plainly terrible. Yeah. Like, yeah. the Guardians are little purple or little blue men who have created the core, the core and they're awful. Yeah, they're bumbling upper management. Yeah. Yeah. And there's only so many stories you can do where, they, oh, they've screwed up again, and I guess we just have to take it. <laughs> well, I mean, I like throughout the John series, and you see a little bit here, sort of that thing that they do where there's the similarity between Sinestro and Hal. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both sort of yeah, more yeah. free thinkers than like some of the other people, and that's sort of what they have in common, and that's sort of something that's needed in the Green Lantern Corps. I didn't feel like that really paid off. Well, in this event, but in mm. theory, the where where the character work is supposed to be happening is that we have all these ancillary one shots that mm. are like this is the villain character we're yeah. focusing on. But a lot of them seem more like let's catch you up on the continuity of this character than let's do anything with them. Yeah, and I don't think there's a single major of all the villain characters they introduce. I think they all basically are survive they all are like well we're probably gonna fight again yeah which feels really unsatisfying it felt Mm -hmm. with and you can see whether you agree but i mean it felt with some of the tie-ins for annihilation because these are resets for a lot of these characters Mm -hmm. right so rather than just being restating the continuity it's i mean what i did think was really sort of great about focusing on sort of ronin super skrull silver surfer and who's the fourth person nova nova was that 
Well, at least in the case of Ronan Super Scroll, those were not characters that had a ton of depth previously. Right. They They're, were just they kind of like Chevy, megalomaniacal, um, like characters that would show up as Fantastic Four villains or, as you said earlier, in like an Iron Man comic or something. And then they give them a lot of depth here. Yeah. You know, they sort of become characters with sort of conflicts and families and pasts that you really care about. I didn't think before Annihilation that I would care about Ronan as a yeah. character. I mean, he's like one of the most simplistic characters ever. And then stemming from this, he becomes this more complicated character. He like ends up having that like wedding to Crystal. I, I wind up rooting up... for that relationship. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> I care about Ronan and the humans. How did this happen? <laughs> And I did bring up earlier, but there's that really strangely sexy cover of him for one of the Annihilation issues where he's sort of shirtless with these like slab-like pecs and his wax chest and he's got his hammer lying on the table really visible like you know, bulge right next to him. I was just like, what the hell? They're really trying to remake Ronan as something you care about and it's working. This is not your parents' And then he would become Lee Pace, which I'm also on board with. But if only he was given anything to yeah. I mean yeah that, that is not a step towards Ronin as a character <laughs> but Super Scroll too he gets a sort of a romance narrative yeah. he gets a son and sort of some motivations and he gets to sort of redeem himself and become a more heroic character yeah. which is an interesting character arc for him yeah I think one of the easiest ways that you sort of um make your character more distinctive is when you have them resist the collective that they yeah. usually represent. Yeah. yeah. So having Ronan go against the Kree, having Super Scroll move away from the Scrolls a little bit, um, even having Nova question the core and stuff like that, uh, I think that's where you start to see them developing their own character and their own sense of agency, and that makes them richer. Did you guys have favorite characters or character moments from either of these series? Um, I know uh, Andrew made a very accurate point about Annihilus being a villain who's just not that interesting. <laughs> but the moment where they uncover his ultimate goal and motivation, I just love that. That uh, Annihilus's big goal here is not just to mindlessly eradicate people. It's to eradicate literally every other thing that exists. So it is the only thing that exists forever. And that's... Just so wonderfully over the top <laughs> nonsense. Yeah, why Thanos would be surprised by that? I kind of thought that yeah. was always a nihilist's motivation, given his name. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Well, the, I think maybe not surprised as like it's the exact counter to him that like he wants a continual death and there will oh, be no death. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, I just found it funny because the way that they reveal that is that he has Moon Dragon, you know, read Annihilus's mind to find that out. And I was like, well, his motivation's really secret? Or <laughs> I mean, the killing part wasn't. The yeah. replacing the universe with just him. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. What about you, Andrew? Favorite character moments or characters? Um, I will say that my not favorite character yeah. is Cammy. Yes. She feels out of place here. So explain to listeners who Cammy is, because if you haven't read this, you probably don't remember her. Well, uh, so Annihilation actually starts with a um, kind of Drax the Destroyer miniseries, mm -hmm. which Giffen created a year before just because he wanted to revive Drax the Destroyer. Mm -hmm. And it was successful enough that he was able to create Annihilation afterwards. And he was like, well, what other characters can I do this with? Uh, it's a story where Drax lands in Alaska, and he basically picks up this, like, teen... Um, dependent, I guess we could call it, mm -hmm. uh, in the kind of like Kitty Pride Wolverine vein. These tough guys always need a plucky teenager mm -hmm. to humanize, to humanize them. them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
it works for that story, but taking her into outer space and just literally just having her there um, kind of doesn't work. She's uh, she, she's badly out of context, I guess is the, the easiest way to look at it. She's pretty unlikable, too. Yeah. I mean, she's like there and like <laughs> billions of people are dying around her and she's like, hey, don't leave me behind. I'm here. I'm Cammy. And she's <laughs> I mean, she does have some weird parallels with the Screech fairy that she winds up with. Screech being a little fairy, half-naked fairy, follows Thanos around for no apparent reason for this series. She hangs it on his shoulder. Did Starlin introduce her, or was it Giffen, the Chaos Knight fairy? I, bl- I don't know if it was Giffen, but I don't think it was Starlin. I believe yeah. Skeet comes from it the Thanos re- series. just reminds me of someone like from, the Starlin If she comes from that series, though, like, it will yeah. be an invention there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we know it's connected to the Beyonder in some way, but it's kind of unclear. I don't remember there being a super great payoff for the Skeet character. No, she doesn't appear after this ever again, as far as I can tell. So she hooks up with Cammy, and then Cammy appears in some of the follow-up series, but doesn't have a uh, payoff. uh, Yeah, although she doesn't have anything to do for a decade or so after this. (laughs) So we don't need to talk about her anymore. Did you have any character moments that you liked, though, Andrew? Yeah, well, a lot, but... um... I think one of the things that I really liked the most was the um, the villain character dynamic. As much as I think Annihilus was a shallow villain, um, I thought the relationship between Thanos, Annihilus, and Galactus was really cool uh, and a good way to ha- like. When we talk about like your your villain group, you normally have like your Cobra Commander and your Destro, and that's mm-hmm. the best you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Thanos is well, he plays a kind of Destro. He does, <laughs> but but his ambitions are very personal. They're a little more clever, and um, uh, Annihilus's dependence on him is much more pivotal and important. And the way that the heroes pick up that they got to beat Thanos in order to beat Annihilus, mm-hmm. in order to get Galactus uh, sort yeah. of on their side. Although I mean. Uh, as I complained earlier, uh, two of the villains, uh, Tenebris and Aegis, oh, yeah. who are basically Celestials-ish, Question mark. who are introduced <laughs> to be the ones that t- take up Galactus, and they then kind of disappear after, and that, that feels a little shoddy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that aside, I was very impressed with how well it does, though, at... Because one of the dangers you often run into with Marvel Cosmic is just you have character after character who's just insanely superpowered yeah. and a sort of a cosmic entity with very unclear superpowers. I mean, it's like, what are Thanos' powers? He can shoot lasers out of his fists, he can teleport, he is basically invulnerable to everything. You know, he's basically just got whatever powers he needs to have at any particular moment. And sometimes he has the infinity knowledge, which means he has even more powers. But yeah. I thought that they did a remarkably good job of kind of like creating that power hierarchy. I mean, it's like yeah, you said, like certain you can get to this person through this person, but this person's ultimately more powerful than this person. Yeah. And I found it actually worked surprisingly well. Yeah, I really yeah, like the idea of the heralds being air support. Mm-hmm. Like, like that was kind of clever. They have their own thing to do, and they're up there, and that's where their superpowers make the most sense. Uh, so you're creating these like like real world metaphors again, trying to fit into this military um, um, genre that is really strong in this story. I think there was an interview where uh, Johns or someone involved in the uh, Sinestro Corps War referred to it as uh, World War II, but all of space. Yeah. And Annihilation does a much better job at that than the Corps. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly makes the metaphor more transparent, I guess. 
I sort of liked this version of Thanos too, this sort of yeah. like Zen quest version of Thanos. He's like wearing the kind of like, you know, yeah, actually he looks like very... Jedi robes and going around and it's... he's just sort of, I mean, it's not totally different from versions of Thanos in the past, but he's like a little bit more chilled out and a little bit more just yeah. inquisitive. He's well, not the mad type. No. Spoiler, but it's kind of the look he has at the beginning of Endgame. Yeah. I've said many times my favorite thing about Infinity Gauntlet as a book and that Marvel Infinity War kind of did uh, was the idea that, that Thanos isn't really necessarily a bad guy yeah. and all he really wants is to hang out on his farm and chill out. Uh, and but impresses, he feels he has this mission. And impress his girlfriend. And impress his girlfriend who is death. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't happen in the main Annihilation series. It's in one of the tie-ins, but I really... It really brought back to me, like, how disturbing and... Well, I do think it's good, but, I mean, disturbingly good sort of the story involving the Herald Stardust was. So he comes from this sort of race of people who are sort of these sort of misty, microbial people who, like, don't... The reason he wants to kind of get out from hanging out with them is that he wants to be an individual and they don't have that kind of sort of society or existence. He criticizes them from just flitting around space from one thing to another. He wants to have a sense of purpose and a sense of self. So he becomes a herald of Galactus. And he gets so mad in this argument with his people that he sort of kills them and absorbs them into himself. And when Galactus asks him to prove his loyalty, he gives the essence of his people to Galactus to feed on. So he effectively kills... (laughs) his entire race as a tribute to Galactus, which is obviously super creepy and super awful and makes him a total villain, but I like the emphasis throughout the series on sort of that effect that Galactus has on the heralds. You see the Silver Surfer going back to Galactus, and I mean, the depth of the love in their relationship is both disturbing and affecting. I mean, Mm. they really love each other. Did you guys sort of get that, or was that just me reading too much into it? I mean, it's just sort of the depths of the server's loyalty was more than loyalty to me. There was, like, a love there. There's at least a history, right? Yeah. I don't know. There's definitely sort of a sensuality in the way that that relationship kind of plays out in this era. Well, it's been present in previous Silver Surfer comics, too, but, you know, like, you know, he takes the Silver Surfer into his hands and remakes him, and... But it's creepy as hell, too, right? Because he manipulates mm-hmm. the Silver Surfer's mind in this process. So, I don't know. I just That dynamic, I felt, was handled with the requisite amount of sort of creepiness. And because it should be, because it's a very disturbing concept. Right. And, you know, what Galactus does is very disturbing. And the effect that he must have on the people that he transforms into working for him is incredibly creepy. Yeah. And as Michael had said prior to the pod, just, just where this ends up. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, an interesting continual comparison between Galactus and Unilateralist yeah. forces that uh, we're, we're told over and over again, mostly by the surfer, although somewhat by Nova, that yeah. Annihilus represents a cancer, an infestation, mm-hmm. whereas Galactus is somehow natural. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of the idea that Silver Surfer needs to believe that in order to justify his actions yeah. with Galactus, but yeah. I, I wish a character would have called him, or I wish there was a character in a position to call him on that a little bit. To be fair, he's been called on that in basically every Silver True. Surfer series. But I mean, this is the re- yeah. if this is the renewal of the series, then yeah. that is also a point you can reopen. Yeah. No, for sure. Oh, and we didn't mention it earlier when we were talking about motivation, but I really like Thanos' motivation, too. Yeah. He just wants to see something new. 
I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Which is, you Which know, is, a nice... a really good character read of him, I felt like. Because yeah. if you're that character, what else would you be interested in but just finding something new? And it's a nice, almost meta-statement, too, that this is about right, finding right. something yeah. new. Yeah. brought up sort of themes of cosmic genocide and stuff earlier that for me has always been a particularly problematic trope in a lot of the cosmic comic books you get sort of them using the extended universe as just like a way that you can kill a planet full of people for stakes you know like mm-hmm. to make it seem like a threat is really serious you kind of throw all these aliens under the bus and just like wow the whole alien world got I mean, dark phoenix saga being right. an example of that right did you feel that, and I feel it's quite an irresponsible trope in sort of in terms of just sort of like mm, normalizing concepts of genocide by just sort of hand-waving them mm-hmm. and just sort of these images of stacked <laughs> bodies and all of this stuff. Did you have issues with sort of the use of that trope in either of these series? Did you feel like, I guess what I'm trying to get, was the violence problematic in these series? I mean, you're always going to have an element of that when we're talking about superheroes and stuff, but we have like a lot of death in both of these series and a lot of sort of images and invocations of genocide. And did it trouble you at all? Did you feel that it was handled more responsibly than usual or not? Or does it just feed into that history of that trope being problematic? I think in both cases, it reads worse going back because, Mm -hmm. I mean, they both cosmic uh, events will go on to kind of repeat these stakes yeah, over yeah. and over again. Well, the, the last one, right, is the cancer verse trying to yeah. affect everybody, right? And, yeah. yeah. Which may be a deliberate calling back to yeah. the Giffen yeah. Annihilation, but yeah, I, I think where this gets to kind of the big points are in the prologue and the uh, prequel series where whole planets are destroyed mm-hmm basically to tell us, oh, the Annihilation Wave is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that the Sinestro Corps is both of a higher level and a lower level, that mm-hmm. the stakes in the Sinestro Corps war go to the entire multiverse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, when it comes to the on-the-ground fighting, it's mm-hmm. pretty much just the Green Lantern Corps and the Yellow Lantern Corps. Mm-hmm. So it's not these entire civilizations being wiped away the most part i could be wrong there but i don't know i think you're right I, it was uh, i got the idea but, that mostly it was like the death of a lot of but it feels more gratuitous yeah that we have all of these because we have all of these individualized characters who are just wiped off yeah. just to tell us again a repeat theme for green lanterns is that kind of moment where the green lantern is this green lantern is deceased searching for a new mm-hmm. subject and that gets hammered a lot. Yeah, I think that's the other piece of it, too. It's a two-for-one. It's established stakes, but it's also a pruning of canonicity. Mm-hmm. And in Annihilation, that's maybe especially important because you are drawing from these works of all these different authors with all these different characters and backstories. Um, but it leads me to a question that I don't have the answer for, which is, is it less gross when it's a world that you know? Like when it's Xandar, for example, and like that has been established and you're supposed to feel some sort of sympathy to it. Or is it um, less gross when it's a fully fleshed out world that you've never heard of before that just exists to be destroyed? Um, I don't know. I, I think I think it can be read as grotesque, but as I said, it serves like a really clear purpose from a storytelling perspective. Mm-hmm. You don't want to throw characters under the bus. That's the definition of fridging. 
um, just for the sake of motivating other characters. Um, but at the same time, you also don't want to celebrate random violence. You want violence to have stakes and consequences. And, and again, when you've been raised as a fan of like the Nova Corps and stuff like that, you see Xandar get demolished. That does hit home a little bit more. I do find the kind of spectacularization of genocide as a trope to be problematic inescapably. I mean, it is like, yeah. it's sort of mortgaging our fascination with mass death and that just is what it is and it's problematic. But at the same time, I do think Annihilation does a better job than a lot of the Marvel Cosmic stuff um, at showing the consequences of the violence. Yes. We do get lots of sort of in-between stories of people sort of on these worlds that have been devastated or refugees and survivors and that type of thing. And we certainly get a lot of the emotional consequence of like yeah. with, with Richard Ryder Nova and his Making the choice, right? Mm-hmm. And Drax says, you know, you can... Uh, I, I forget what the thing is. You, you can lose a thousand or you can lose a million or something like that. And he's like, where's that go? So it never takes death lightly, I feel, despite the fact that mass death is happening and it clearly is spectacularized. Yeah. I, I mean, on the other side of that, yeah. of course, the villain army is a bunch of insects, which yeah. is a classic yeah. science fiction trope yeah. to make it easy to I mean, I, 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 I wanted to rewatch Starship Troopers to yeah. get myself in mind yeah. for this, but I didn't have. <laughs> yeah, because we don't have to feel bad about them getting killed. No, they're just so bugs. inhuman. Okay, they are drones, literally. The, yeah. the Yellow Lantern Corps are individualized visually, right. but I mean, they're pretty much similar. Like, they are all monstrous. Yeah. So it feels good. And then they're mobilizing <laughs> the fear, you know, yeah. that they're bad people. I sort of, this is getting a little bit off, but I, in terms of the multiple colors sort of green lantern thing that continues after this mm-hmm. i sort of felt like the the red rage lanterns were a little bit more effective in terms of like garnering sympathy because mm-hmm. they were all characters that had something horrible done to them and i think at least a couple of the characters had been involved in like genocides and stuff so they had almost like a vindication for their evil whereas the yellow lanterns most of them yeah not. they're just jerks yeah <laughs> with with some varying but yeah, for the most part, so these are just people who like to see other... They're bullies. Yeah. They're people who like to see other people fear. And that's very not sympathetic. And I mean, at least Sinistro people. has the excuse, fear is a tool to create order. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something that we've talked about in a lot of previous episodes, but something I'm going to make us talk about again, because it's an interesting thing to talk about in the context of these two series, as it is interesting to talk about with mainstream superhero comics in general, was the representation of peanut characters. We do have a lot of super-powered women in both of these series. Um, go from there. How did you feel about <laughs> how other of these series did with with superpowered women, what characters stood out to you, what things stood out as problematic, what things stood out as good potentially. I, I think Sinestro Core War is the easier one here because mm-hmm. it's mostly an absence. Yeah. I mean they're there, but none of them get really prominent roles. Mm-hmm. I think the closest exception we get is I mean there's scenes with various uh, female characters who have been established in the core series. That's not Green Lantern, that's Green Lantern yeah. Core, which is not the core. Yeah. Yeah. We get an early scene with, what's her name? The uh, Green Lantern who's from the same planet as Sinestra. Right. Oh, yeah, it's like Natu, right? Yeah. Or I'm not sure how we're pronouncing And I think that, that's but... the most we get, and mostly yeah. she's just reacting to him. 
Yeah. It's still one of the longest character dialogue scenes yeah. in the entire series. Well, she, she does have a better kind of character arc, I think, moving forward from here. I remember her being a bit better, but she doesn't get a lot to do here. It does kind of define her in always in Sinestro's mold, that I think it's revealed that she's his daughter. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's sort of like you don't exist outside of him. Oh, I didn't... Yeah, that's a bad move. I didn't even mm. remember about that. I was just... I was going to speak in her favor for having... I do like I her. think she does have a good long-term yeah. arc. Yeah. But, I mean, she's got that conflict here, with, where a she's a healer yeah. and she's being right. pushed into a role as a soldier. Yeah. That's... And so that's a good, like, non-gender-specific defining conflict yeah. that, like, you know, gives her some interest as a character. And it is brought up in the Sinestro Core War. You know, we get some stuff where... She's trying to work in the hospital and stuff and has to get called away to war and she does have issues with the lethal force stuff, but yeah. it's not really a big part of the story. And it's telling that there are like a hundred Green Lanterns in this, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of female. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are visually though, and this is where I think it's problematic, is they have nothing to do in the story, typically. But they're often they're visualized in versions of the Green Lantern costume that are sexualized in a different way than the way that the male characters are. Yeah. So they're they're functioning as lamps, right? They're they're, they're the sexy lamp, um, and that is again problematic when you add that to as you said the sort of absence of her roles in the actual narrative itself. I hate giving a short skirt to female characters that fly. It's just like, <laughs> it's just so obviously problematic. Yeah. Just give them little shorts. <laughs> like, it looks just as sexy. And it makes more sense. The way they fly in this series yeah. is cleavage first. Yeah. Uh, there's the uh, Yellow Lantern uh, note-taker, I guess. Uh, yeah. Lissa Drac. Who, yeah. So far, her characterization seems to be, what if we made Vampirella yeah. blue? Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. I, I did like the way she's drawn differently by different of the artists, like in the... I'm, I'm going to screw up who it is, but like one of the artists draws her with like these really terrible pumps, and then like another artist like yeah. gives her like bare feet and stuff. It's just like seeing what these different artists thought was sexy. It's like really funny with that character. But I mean, with, with, with Matthew too, I, what really stood out to me in terms of her being, she doesn't even, she's not even sexualized more than like, you know, Arisia or one of the other, some of the other characters, but she is this very serious, like, doctor character, and she wears, like, the unisex costume, but always zipped down so far, and it just seems so <laughs> off character-wise. Yeah. Like, it's... It detracts from her story arc in a significant way because that character, the way she's written, would not wear the outfit like that. She's desperate to be taken seriously. She wouldn't wear the costume like that. Yeah, and I think that's where you're sort of breaking the fourth wall, right? When the sexualization of the character is inconsistent with the character. And that's a nice contrast to Gamora, who is an extremely sexual character, Mm -hmm. um, who is also visually sexualized. It reads as less maybe egregious. Well, let's talk about the women in Annihilation then, because, yeah, Gamora is one of those ones where she's a bit like Emma Frost, where you can kind of defend her sexiness as being like, well, she's a sexy character, that's part of her character, and so, you know, like, she can have this certain type of costume. And to a certain extent, I am okay with that. I actually did have issues with sort of the desexualization of her in the Guardians of the Galaxy Mm -hmm. movies, just to the extent that it robbed her of some of her agency because of her very naive. 
And I understand why they did that, but the main reason that they did it is because in the first one they really only had, well, they had Nebula too, but they only had one female superhero character. So if you made her the ultra-sexy character, that would obviously be problematic because you only have one character. Whereas in some of the versions of the Guardians of the Galaxy comic that I really liked, you had like five or six female mm-hmm. characters and they can yeah. all be different. And one of them can be wearing the Vampirella costume because that's just one. And then the other one can be wearing a different costume. You have different women representing different things. And within that context, for me, it becomes a little bit less problematic. I will say, though, that the way that they draw her costume, so, <laughs> so like, it's basically like a, the thong back, like, with the two, you know, bands that come over her breasts, but they draw it so that the bands hook under her breasts, like they're glued to her body. I mean, that just makes no sense. Just, there's, like, there's no put them straight down and go bold with the side boob, because that's how her costume would work. It's just, that's distracting, because that makes no sense. Yeah. So I actually would have preferred that if they just drew that more realistically. Well, well maybe coming back to what I was saying about this idea of um, the question of the fourth wall, I think for me, particularly in the Ronin miniseries, the problem is this fight scene she has with Thanos, yeah. which should be a fight scene. Yeah. And on her end, it's yeah. mostly finding angles to stare at her in yeah. her costume, yeah. uh, as opposed to acknowledge her power as a warrior. So, I mean, as much as I'm praising Annihilation for its ability to um, revitalize these older characters, I don't think it did justice to Gamora. Yeah. I think she's um, one of the ones who got left behind. So, I guess, in terms of costume and characterization, uh, Moondragon. Yeah, I was going to talk about her. I mean, I don't know. I know where she goes from this. I don't know as much about her history. That is a very scanty costume that she wears. Does that fit with her? I mean, I know it's a very traditional costume for her, but... I just associate it so strongly with her that I can't almost imagine her in something else. I like the all white with the cape thing that she wears sometimes, too. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. Although it's going very far in the other direction. Mm. I mean, like, you know, her being a lesbian character is more recent, but I just find I so strongly associate it with her now that I'm just sort of like, I don't know, she's like this, like, her costume's like lesbian camp or something at this point. <laughs> but I know that that's giving her way too much credit because they probably oh, weren't no. as smart as that about it, but like, mm-hmm. I almost don't want to not see her in that costume just because it takes on a different meaning through her gayness, but... I thought Moondragon had a lot of good stuff to do in Annihilation. I wish that she didn't have to do so much of it while wearing, like, a scanty tunic thing and, like, writhing on the floor at Thanos' feet. Yeah, and being subjected to violence, right? Yeah, I I like where both her and uh, Phylavel wind up. They both get really, like, strong moments, but also involves them going through some not-so-great moments to get there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like that their relationship exists, but it's never been handled particularly no. well. I mean, I'm very sad that they haven't made it into the Guardians movies, but um, Phyla is, like, a weird one, because I want to like her so much. Like, I love her costume. Like, I love both of the costumes she's had, like, in this, in this mm-hmm. cosmic run. She has nice sort of full-body covering costumes with, like, some nice graphic design and bright colors, and she's got some awesome haircuts. I've had all of her haircuts. <laughs> she has like the cute like bangs for and balcony haircut, and then an asymmetric house. Like I've had all of those. <laughs> so she's like so set up for me to love her, and then man, she has like a shitty, shitty character arc. Yeah, from, she's like, just yeah. there. Yeah, and she's just really chronically unconfident and overpowered. Yeah, I mean, and just, like, sure like, gets blamed sure for everything all the time and never really. It, it seems like she's always <laughs> also uh, one of those characters who's on the cusp of 
if they are written out, there's a good chance you will never see this person yeah. again. Yeah. yeah. And so you want to be like, well, I'm glad they're appearing at all, but also, could this be better? Yeah. I mean, I won't totally blame... She doesn't have, like, a, you know, really strong story in Annihilation, but it sets her up to have a strong story, and I feel like it's the ones after that that mm -hmm. drop the ball on it, because mm -hmm. she was set up to be interesting, and it doesn't really pay off. So we've done so much talking about the things we liked and didn't like about both of these series, but what you both touched on in your intro is that both of these events um, were really instrumental in jump-starting some of the transmedia stuff, right? Trend, you know, we got the Green Lantern movie almost directly coming out of this rejuvenation of Green Lantern and we get Guardians of the Galaxy and now, you know, the recent Avengers movie is kind of spinning out from this revitalization of Marvel Cosmic. What was it about these two series that made them successful? Why did they have this sort of, I mean, <laughs> less success in terms of the Green Lantern adaptation, but but what was it about these two events that sort of made them so adaptable, that made them so successful? I think in terms of uh, the Central Cold War and Jeff Johns, you could kind of frame it as a chicken and the egg issue, that Johns went on to become immensely prominent in DC in general. So mm -hmm. his stylistics and his uh, favorite approaches were going to be adopted. Mm -hmm. But then again looking at it from the other way, this is the reason he got that was because of this approach. Now I've lost it. <laughs> well, I was thinking, I mean, because Johns is the guy who revitalizes all these Silver Age characters, yeah. right? Yeah. And it seems like a lot of what the movie adaptations are selling is, you know, instant incorporation into a dense history, right? right? And, so, uh, you know, his rejuvenation of the original Flash and the original Green Lantern is very good for selling those properties as having that history and having that prestige of that history. And also a sense of, well, let's take this seriously now, mm -hmm. uh, which has very much been the operating, at least, philosophy that seems to be behind uh, Superman and the Justice League that... We are going to look at the collateral damage. We're going to take a hard look at superheroes. Because, I mean, the idea before Jeff Jones' work on Green Lantern of doing, like, Sinestro or, oh god, I really, who's the villain with the giant head again? The, um, Anti-Monitor? No, 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 no Green Lantern. Hector Lanterns, Hammond? Hector, yeah, right. Hector Hammond, like, having him, like, be in a live-action movie as, like, a main protagonist, oh, yeah. and it's, like, not a comedy. I mean, it's just, like, I, that, that's weird, <laughs> and it's not surprising to me that that didn't work. But, I mean, it's because of Jeff Johns sort of reinvigorating that canon and, like, trying to get us to take it really seriously that those things did happen. I mean, what about, what about Annihilation? What about the rejuvenation of Marvel Cosmic? Because I think we're going to see moving forward sort of Marvel going more and more to the well of kind of... Yeah, I, I think Marvel Cosmic was in a bad state prior to Annihilation. I, I would equate it to you have a whole bunch of like leftover shreds of bars of soap, and, and Giffen comes along and he squishes them together yeah. that it's big enough to be functional again. Well, it's almost like they made they remade a second universe yeah. of, of properties to pull from. Yeah, it's part recycling, but it's also part upcycling. Yeah, and, and I think really what it comes down to is. 
he showed that there were more stories to tell in this universe. Yeah. The, yeah. There was a character dynamic, there was a setting, there were things that are worth reading and, uh, and drawing you away from the traditional superhero fare. And I will give like some credit to Abnett and Lanning there because it's yeah. the next yeah. event yeah. that really establishes the Guardians as we mm-hmm. know them today, that mm-hmm. Rocket and uh, Groot aren't in this yeah. and they're pulled in in the next cycle. Yeah, yeah, I was just rereading the beginning of Annihilation Conquest, which is the event that follows this, and yeah, his, so Star-Lord at the beginning of that one is like recruiting very, his dirty and, dozen team, yeah. and it includes Rocket and Groot. And, and immediately Mantis. it's a very different Star-Lord. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. He becomes more of a, I think, I don't know what, more of a wisecracking outsider comedic the type rogue. of character. Yeah, yeah. More, yeah, more of a Han Solo character. Why didn't I just say that? <laughs> I'm going to be doing our academic book review for this week. Um, as we discussed, it's going to be Hand of Fire, The Comics Art of Jack Kirby by the esteemed Charles Hatfield. Um, it's from 2012, and it's published by University of Press of Mississippi. So Hand of Fire is pretty much the definitive, at this point anyway, scholarly work on one of the most influential and lauded popular American comic book artists of all time in Jack Kirby. Kirby's influence spans multiple eras. His career began amid the birth of comic books, and superheroes in the late 1930s and early 1940s, during which he co-created one of his most famous characters, Captain America. After the war, when superheroes were falling out of fashion, he helped create the romance comics genre. He was also a driving force in the rejuvenation of superheroes in the 1960s at Marvel Comics, where he co-created characters such as the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Thor, Hulk, and several of the cosmic characters we've been talking about today, including the Silver Surfer, Annihilus, and Galactus. He further pursued his passion for comic stories at D- for cosmic stories rather at DC Comics in the 1970s, where he created the New Gods saga, which was a big influence on the work of Jim Starlin, who would become a driving creative force behind the further growth of Marvel's comic cosmic universe throughout the 1970s and 80s. The main villain of the New Gods saga, Darkseid, is an obvious inspiration for Starlin's Thanos, who was a major player in the comics we read today. In short, it's impossible to think about the cosmic universes of Marvel and DC Comics, or even just superhero comics in general, without Kirby's style and sensibility, his passion for spectacular violence, wild machinery, and cosmic wonder. Hatfield's book is imbued with that sense of wonder. Throughout, Hatfield is bravely inventive in his his attempts to devise a language instead of guideposts to discuss the too often neglected deep meaning embedded in the design of superhero bodies and spectacles. I want to share just a brief excerpt from Hatfield to give you an idea of the thoughtfulness and thoroughness that he really brings to these topics. So this is from Hand of Fire. Kirby's handling of movement and action, writes Hatfield, continually urges his iconic renderings of form toward the symbolic. Though often described as cinematic by admirers, in a sense his style represents a distinctly uncinematic approach to evoking movement in static form, a way that recalls futurism in its decomposition of movement and cubism in its all-at-once depiction of different perspectives. Though Kirby's drawings may seem to represent discrete and explosive instants of action, in fact, they capture extended spans of action in synoptic tableaus. His drastic foreshortening, anatomical distortions, and slashing diagonals help to freeze time on the page. That's just one of many excellent passages from throughout this wonderfully written book. Um, I also really appreciated Hatfield's struggle with how to discuss auteurism within the context of work that is at once individual and intensely generic. Kirby didn't write or draw autobiographical comics or indie comics. He wrote and drew genre comics on an intensely demanding schedule. 
meaning that his capacity for individual expression was always inherently limited. As Hatfield describes, quote, for most comic book artists of Kirby's generation, sketching and drafting were unthinkable luxuries. Pages were composed not at leisure, but against tight deadlines. The nature of the comic book industry made near impossible the deliberate cultivation of style and the advantages of conscious artistic self-discovery. The medium's production rhythm compromised the research necessary for innovation. Hatfield argues that Kirby's work stands out because it's able to exceed those realities, because it's able to be individual and innovative in spite of its limited context of production. I don't disagree with Hatfield on this point, but by the end of the book I wasn't sure if I fully agreed with it either. On a fundamental level, I'm not sure whether I agree with applying an auteurist framework to popular genre comics like Kirby's. Too much emphasis on Kirby as a singular creative force risks losing sight of how these types of highly collaborative comics really work. At times, Hatfield's close readings of different eras of Kirby's artistic production felt strangely isolated from broader cultural contexts and generic conventions. Contexts and conventions that I know Hatfield knows well. Often, I found myself wondering, is what Hatfield is saying about Kirby only true of Kirby, or is it true of other superhero comics artists who employ similar techniques? Or, for that matter, is it true of other romance comics artists? Unfortunately, Kirby's non-superhero work doesn't get anywhere near as much space in Hatfield's book. That said, from a book that never pretends to be anything besides a detailed study of the work of a particularly influential artist who certainly deserves that kind of in-depth analysis, I'm obviously expecting a bit too much. For anyone trying to figure out how the heck to analyze a double-wide comic book splash page featuring dozens of gaudily clothed, super-powered people shooting each other with laser weapons against a backdrop of exploding stars, Hatfield's book is essential reading. As usual, we'd like to thank St. Jerome's University for the use of their facilities today. And as we've gotten into the habit of doing, we're going to do a few recommendations for further reading related to what we discussed this week. I'd like to recommend the 2009 Rebels series from DC. That's Rebels as Revolutionary Elite Brigade to Eradicate Legion <laughs> Supremacy. <laughs> this was a revitalization of an earlier 90s series by the same name. It's kind of space mercenaries. And... It's by uh, Tony Bedard and Andy Clark. What I like about it is that it's a look at the DC cosmic stuff that it takes a step back from the endless war cycle that the Green Lanterns were stuck in and just let's do some space capers. Mm, and it was a lot good. of fun. I haven't read that. Yeah. A helpful rec for me. What about you, Andrew? Uh, maybe just super relevant to what we talked about today. I'm going to recommend the Galactus Trilogy, which is maybe peak Jack Kirby. It might be like the greatest story arc of his career. Uh, its effect on Marvel Cosmic is enormous. Uh, this is the introduction of the Silver Surfer as well. It has elements that haven't aged well. It can be a little bit cheesy and, and, and campy, but it also has a rare pathos um, for some of the early Marvel Comics comics that I think holds up pretty well today and lays tremendous groundwork. I would challenge it almost a little bit that the Fantastic Four annual that has where Sue Storm has her baby, where they go to the negative zone and that is just like such a wonderful Jack Kirby, <laughs> like he's got these Kirby collages in that one. Yeah. They're just like, oh no, now it's the like, oh, what are they called? This like, like the Borealia or Borers or something like that. Anyway, it's just like, <laughs> it's just wonderful. Um, but that's an excellent recommendation. 
my recommendation ties into yours in that it finally makes good on the romantic tension between Alicia Masters and the Silver Surfer, um, which is the Silver Surfer series from the 90s. It's Silver Surfer Volume 3, anywhere sort of around issue 120 or so. It's the run by J.M. DeMatteis and penciled by Ron Garney. So during that series, um, Surfer has a romantic relationship with Alicia Masters and sort of dealing with Sort of, you know, his connection to humanity and the cosmic as he always is. But, you know, I always like me a good superhero romance, so... And it was sort of unusual in terms of the other stuff Marvel was publishing around 1995 when <laughs> excess was all the rage. This is a bit of a quieter story, so hmm. check that out if you're so inclined. And we would also like to do a little hype build for our next episode in which we are going to be looking at a couple of works by comic book writer Mike Carey. We are going to be doing My Faith in Frankie, penciled by Sunny Lou and Mark Hempel, and Highest House, penciled by Peter Gross. So look forward to that. Mm-hmm.